Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Henry Ramsey, Dave Rothrock, and Len Lickbar, authors of Keystone Fly Fishing. We have three guests with us today, and they are the authors of this book, Keystone Fly Fishing, The Ultimate Guide to Pennsylvania's Best Water. And our guests are Henry Ramsey, Len Lickvar, and Dave Rothrock. Dave, we'll start with you. Uh, when did you get into fly fishing? Oh, my goodness. Uh, back in the mid-1960s. Uh, it was a time when a lot of people didn't share knowledge, uh, but I had seen some articles in various magazines on the subject and actually I can remember the one article that really stood out. It was uh, on fishing Wade Lake out in the west and I saw these flies, I saw these fish and I thought man that would be really great to try and I knew no one who fly fished so I was totally on my own but I persevered and now, 50-plus years later, I'm still doing it. Len, how'd you get into it? Well, uh, of course, I grew up uh, as a bait fisherman, uh, worms, salmon, eggs, cheese, etc. because that's what my father knew, and he's the one who taught me, taught me to fish. He knew nothing about uh, fly rod angling or anything along those lines. It was very foreign. Where we live in southwestern Pennsylvania wasn't, uh, you know, the hotbed of fly rod angling in the state or anyplace else. So everybody I knew uh, also fished that way. Uh, when I got to about 18, 19, 20 year olds, got into college, uh, uh, I'd fished plenty of times and back in those days we killed our limited trout and brought them home. We were very successful and I was really starting to get bored with fishing in all, in all honesty because it was the same thing over and over again. And there's nothing wrong with bait fishing. Many of my friends still do it today. It's very effective and I'm not demeaning it in any way, shape or form, but it, it was getting old for me. And uh, I started to watch TV, uh, the old American sportsman with Kurt Gowdy fly fishing out there, you know. You didn't get much of that, and every once in a while you get a Field and Stream article or something. That was back in the day before there were videos and magazines and books of the magnitude there are today. So information was, just like Dave said, tough to come by. Uh, you know, I'd see once in a while, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine, actually one of my old school teachers, who's now I fish with all the time, back in the day when I was just 13 or 14 years old watching him cast, but I was too afraid to walk up to him because he was my teacher and ask him how to do that. So I started just interest uh, on my own. I, have, I had no mentor. I had no one to teach me. Uh, I, I, I uh, found, some, found a magazine. I'd see some articles, uh, piecemealed it all together and started to go out and just do it on my own. And of course, made many, many mistakes. But the funny thing was, even though when I was getting into it, other people around me, my friends, the relatives that I fished with, started to ask me questions and ask me about how do they do this. And I said, I'm still learning. I haven't figured this out yet. So we all learn by trial and error together, mostly error, and uh, 
just went on from there as there, and of course as time went on more information came out be able to meet more people in, in the field and it just sort of gravitated to that and I probably wouldn't be fishing today had I not discovered fly fishing I probably would have got out of the sport because I the other methods just didn't interest me anymore but in fly fishing fly tying there's always something new there's always something to learn every time out there's always a new fly there's always a new technique uh, George Harvey who's one of the most famous fly fishermen uh, the world has ever known right here in Pennsylvania who passed away a few years ago after fishing for 70 plus years told me personally many times as he told many of you every time he went out fishing after 70 years of fishing he learned something new and different every time out so that is what keeps my interest in the sport Henry how'd you get into it uh, I remember watching uh, the American sportsman back uh, in the early 1970s and it was it was probably just the same as your your event Len in that I these guys were out on the stream and they were seeing in the current and they were catching all these insect life forms that lived in the stream bed. And then they went back to this cabin and they sat and they started tying flies to imitate these insects. And at that moment, I mean, I was captivated. It was 1972, I was 11 years old. And uh, I wanted to learn to be a fly tire. I caught my first trout when I was five years old on a hand line. And I had been pretty much a bait and spin guy up until that moment. And I wanted to be a fly tire first and foremost. And I muddled along for a couple of years uh, trying to learn uh, I, I used to sign Helen Shaw's book, Fly Tying, out of the high school library. And I probably signed that book out for about a year and a half straight. And uh, that was the first love. And then a couple of years later, I saw a guy fly fishing for the first time, and it was out in Juniata County. And it was magic. It was just something that, that captured my imagination. It was beautiful. It was graceful. And uh, the guy was a very, very good fly fisherman. And uh, I saw him again later that same summer, and he came over and he showed me the flies that he tied. And they were from chickens that he raised himself. And I thought, man, this is really cool, and now I want to learn to fly fish. So 40-some uh, years later, uh, just like uh, Len's story, I learned something new every day. You know, it, it's always a constant uh, learning experience. For people who know nothing about it, how does it differ from just dropping a line in with a worm on it? Well, with fly fishing, first of all, you don't cast the bait or the lure. The bait or the lure in spin or casting fishing actually is what you cast. In fly fishing, it's the casting of the weight of the line that allows you to present that fly. We ignore, for the most part, the weight of the fly. And that really separates it from any other type of fishing. Well, one of the other things that, that really I get hooked on is that with fly fishing, obviously you're trying to imitate natural insects that the fish normally feed on, uh, rather than giving them something that they normally don't see. Uh, you know, when you wrap feather fur and synthetics on a, on a hook yourself, you're creating something you're, that you created by your own hands if you tie your own flies. And then to be able to uh, not only just catch a fish, but to also fool the fish. And I think that's where it's separated for me from bait fishing and other types of fishing. Uh, lots of people can catch fish, but with fly fishing and, and using artificial uh, flies of that nature, you're really fooling the fish. And that's the kick for me. You're not just catching it, you're also fooling it. Nothing wrong with just catching. That's fun. Catching fish is fun. <laughs> I don't care how you do it. But uh, to me, that little extra that you've actually fooled that fish and duped him into thinking he could eat something that was real but really wasn't is the kick that gets, uh, gets me into it. So do you target a fish? I mean, you see a fish and say, I'm going after that one? At times, yes, mm -hmm. yeah. But getting back to what Lennon said, especially 
the fact that we fool fish. Henry and I take it to a totally different level, okay, in that he and I actually capture the uh, aquatic insects on the stream bottom mm -hmm. or immediately after they've hatched, those that have just taken off and uh, want to make their way to the streamside flora. And we get out our cameras with our macro lenses and our flashes and we actually photograph these bugs mm -hmm. because these then are references for us to use to tie what we hope are a little bit more imitative flies. Now keep in mind that we attribute a lot of intelligence to a creature that has a brain the size of a pea. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, they've fooled me too many times to lead me to believe that I got them figured out. Are fish smart or dumb? They're conditioned. It's yeah. a good way to place it. What does yeah. that mean? Keep in mind, they spend 24-7 in their environment. And obviously, it's a very harsh environment, relatively speaking. And so they're aware of and they're very familiar with what might appear as a food item. And that being the case, they also have a pretty good idea of what's not quite right. And, you know, a lot of times we say that, well, we, we do our best to fish faster water, for, exa for example, that uh, then allows us to have, hopefully, a lot less time for that trout to inspect our, our fly. And maybe, just maybe, they're going to take it a little bit more quickly or more frequently than they would if, in fact, they had more time to uh, really inspect it. Uh, but bottom line is, we see trout and we present flies and they ignore them and all of a sudden we watch them move out of the way and pick up a natural. What's the difference? That's a good question. Well, your, your book starts off right in the beginning with a couple of pages of charts of, of uh, the hatches, Pennsylvania's major trout stream hatches. Why is that so important in fly fishing? Because that's really, really the essence of what fly fishing is about. Uh, rather than, than throwing uh, some kind of a, a natural bait or, or a lure, something that's made out of metals or plastics, you know, we're weaving something to imitate a natural life form that's found in that stream environment, something that a trout would expect to find, and something that becomes readily available at certain key points. Uh, the, the cycles of, of insect emergences throughout the year are much the same as emergences of things like wildflowers. You only find certain wildflowers available for a certain window of time. And you find the same thing with aquatic insects that live in a stream environment. So trout see these things over and over and over. And uh, we, we, we try, we try really hard to craft artificial flies that will look and behave much like those insects at different points of their life cycle. So it's a really, it's a neat natural connection. It, it, it's very organic, it's very natural. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it's fascinating. There are these, you have these unique interactions between natural life forms found in a stream and a fish that do. They live in a very harsh environment. And name, the name of the game for them is always about survival. You know, we have to, we have to feed effect, efficiently. Uh, we can't expose ourselves. We can't take unnecessary risks. We're going to wind up uh, somewhere we don't want to be, you know. So it's a neat thing. So, so the fish are looking for certain types of, they expect certain types of insects to be there at certain times? At times. I don't know if they expect it. I think they get conditioned to, to expect it. You know, you imagine, a, a, let's take a, a mayfly nymph that lives underneath the stones in a stream bed for 300 and some days out of the year. 
and now at a, at, a, at a point in time in their life cycle when they're ready, they're going to make this migration from the stream bed to the stream surface where they're going to emerge and turn into an air-breathing insect and, and live in that state for a day or two. So the trout see this exodus, this, this mass migration of larvae swimming to the surface, and it catches their attention. And, uh, you know, a, a fly that's presented accurately and looks reasonably like or moves like that natural insect will definitely be a lot more effective than something that doesn't quite look like it or doesn't behave exactly the same as those naturals. So it's a, it's a really, really cool experience, plugging something artificial into this natural rhythm and hoping to be successful. And then, too, these insects don't always hatch every day the same insect, insects anyway, and you will have days where we won't really see any. But the vast majority of these crit critters, when they first start emerging, will continue to emerge for perhaps a few days to a week to, to two weeks. Some of them even go longer than that. That's where, and it's all my feeling, opinion or whatever you want to term it, after a couple of days that they see all of this activity, then I believe they could actually be conditioned to expect it at some point in time. Because mm -hmm. you can see them moving out from their sheltered lies in anticipation for food items to be coming down. So they move to what we would term a feeding line. And that puts them in a really great position to be able to uh, intercept whatever might come, come by that they're looking for as a food item. Do you do catch and release? Uh, I started catch and release uh, back in the day when I was explaining to you when I first got into fly fishing and uh, uh, I still remember the, uh, the first time I released a fish in front of my father who grew up, grew up in the depression who, you know, caught fish to eat, uh, killed game to eat, uh, and I'll still never look at the, he thought there was something wrong with me that maybe I need to see uh, a psychiatrist or maybe I shouldn't live at home or, or something along those kind of looks. He couldn't believe that I actually let a fish go. Uh, but I got to the point where, you know, I had enough fish meals, all, you know, that supper that my, my mother made for, for, for many years, and, uh, and I started to read some things, uh, you know, in, in, in some, some magazines and some other things, and started to click in my mind and started to realize that, you know, if I, if I put the fish back, my, it might be there again. And uh, that, you know, I really was there for the fun, you know, that the kick was, was, the, was the take, the catch, and, and, uh, and then the kill just didn't seem to have its same uh, intensity that it did growing up. I'd done all that, been there, done that. And uh, I thought, well, maybe that's a, just a different way to uh, approach the approach a sport, perpetuate the sport. And believe me, I was one of the first people in my area <laughs> where I live that uh, ever thought of doing anything along those lines. Uh, and uh, of course, today things have evolved quite greatly where catch and release has become uh, more of a mantra and uh, more more commonly uh, accepted, and uh, and there's nothing wrong with taking some fish home to eat. You know, the, you know, spe you know, there's nothing wrong with some. Although trout aren't the great best eating fish, or many other species, you can also catch on a fly. Uh, it's not even the book's not just about trout exclusively, but walleye, crappie. Uh, you know, much better eating fish than than a than a hatchery trout mm. in particular uh, are very very poor poor meals. So uh, for all those reasons, uh, I sort of again didn't have anybody tell me. <laughs> to, to release that fish. Again, my father <laughs> was one to tell me the exact opposite. But again, I just uh, came up with that uh, on my own uh, uh, recognizance and then found out uh, as, as years went on that uh, others were having that same uh, mindset and became more, uh, more uh, popular and more uh, accepted.
Do you two do catch and release? Mm -hmm. My dad took it one step further, Len. He yelled at me. <laughs> I wasn't fishing to fly. I was fishing bait at the time. There you go. And he saw me release that fish, and my goodness, did he start on me. But at that point in time, I had just started hearing about catch and release. And it, it, for some reason, early on, really made sense. Today, especially, because we have a lot more anglers on our streams, at least I believe we do, you see a lot of people going to catch and release because, was it Lee Wolf once said, a trout is too valuable to be caught only once? That's who said it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Does it hurt the fish? I don't think it hurts the fish. No. No. And Not to have a hook go through his lip? No, and, and one of the supports for our position that the fish aren't really hurt by this is the fact that there have been studies undertaken by biologists. In fact, Bob Carline from Penn State University uh, conducted a study on Spring Creek. And this was going back several years ago. I believe the numbers are even higher now. His study indicated that the average trout in Spring Creek was caught at least 6.3 times per year. Wow. So that means it didn't die the first time or the second time or the third time. <laughs> it's also how you handle the fish uh, as well. That's very important. Yes, That's getting a lot more absolutely. play these days uh, than in, in the past. Um, and if you bring it up, bang it off the off the rocks, or hold it out of the water for too long, getting photographs, that sort of thing. In fact, a friend of mine, you know, he's, he thinks uh, digital cameras are the worst thing that ever, or you know, cell phones and iPhones are the worst thing ever invented because everybody now has one and everybody's taking pictures of their fish. Well, as long as you do it, you know, and, and I do that. I take plenty of photographs of fish as we all do. That's how we create books. How we re put information in magazines, newspapers, and what have you. People want to see fish. Uh, but if, as long as you handle them appropriately, uh, don't overplay them, uh, release them as quickly as you can. So you can release a fish with a fly even without taking it out of the water very easily with your fingers or with a forcep or other tools that are available today. So the, you know, the impact is very, is very minimal. Uh, the only difference is if they would happen to swallow, but they very rarely swallow a fly because they usually uh, you know, take it in the mouth. I, I, there are ways that you can just cut the line, leave the fly in sometimes if it's in too deep as well. Uh, and eventually that usually works its way out on its own. So uh, it's, it's how it's done. Uh, it also has a big impact on the survivability of the fish. Are the fish you catch native or are they from hatcheries and released? Yes and yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. It's a mix. It's a mix. It depends really depends on where you upon are. the fishery and how mm -hmm. it's managed, uh, you know. Uh, wild trout certainly uh, thrive in a lot of streams across Pennsylvania. There's a lot of streams that are also really heavily dependent upon hatchery rare fish. So uh, yeah, we, it really depends on where you're at. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, where I am in southwestern PA because we've had historic uh, uh, water quality impairments uh, due to abandoned mine drainage, other uh, resource extractive industries that we've had. Uh, you know, a lot of our waters are still recovering from from those impairments. You know, I've spent 30 years as a professional in the conservation field working on water quality improvements in our region. We've made some great uh, strides back, but a lot of those fisheries that we have there are dependent on 
planting of, of stock, stock trout because the, the, the wild stocks have long since been eradicated and the water quality and the stream bottom still covered uh, too much in uh, sediment, mine drainage, et, et cetera, even though they are making tremendous comebacks and we've improved our water quality tremendously. Uh, and we do have plenty of wild trout in southwestern Pennsylvania, far more than most people imagine. But the, the main stem fisheries and most of the people that fish, fish in my region uh, pro probably catch much more, many more stock trout than they do wild trout simply because they're, most of the main waterways uh, are, are still recovering, still being stocked, and most of them don't go into the headwater streams as often uh, to fish for the wild trout that, that we do have. Henry, your focus in the book is on southeastern Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. which is heavily urbanized. Correct. Uh, how's the water in that part of the state? Well, an amazing thing when, uh, when I first agreed to do, uh, to do the write-up for the southeast part of the state, it really forced me to revisit a lot of streams that I hadn't fished since I was a young guy. Um, and what I found was an amazing thing. You know, I, I grew up not far from streams like French Creek and the East Branch of the Brandywine, which were really marginal streams at best when I was a teenager. And, uh, you know, as soon as you get mobile and you have a couple bucks in your pocket, you know, you want to travel. I, I'm, I'm a nomad. I like to fish all over. And it forced me to go back and re-examine some of these streams. And what I found, for instance, uh, the East Branch of the Brandywine, at one time was uh, the beginnings of the paper industry in the New World. This is, this is where uh, paper was first mass produced. The paper mills closed down back in the, in the 1980s. And it's amazing how the East Branch of the Brandywine has recovered and responded not having as much agricultural activity at the headwaters as it once had, and not having the direct discharges from those paper mills into the stream. Uh, the macroinvertebrate life has rebounded significantly. Uh, it, it's amazing. You, you put in some things like the Clean Water Act, and then you see the formation of conservation-type groups like Trout Unlimited, and the Brandywine has a, a conservation uh, club in that area. You give a stream a little bit of love and a little bit of protection. It's amazing how they can recover. And uh, that's the story for a lot of streams in the southeast part of the state, uh, you know, a different type of more industry rather than resource extraction like you have in your, you know, lens part of the state. But uh, streams have rebounded significantly. I think the fishing in southeast Pennsylvania is the best it's been in, in, in quite a significant amount of time. And one of the things you have in southeast Pennsylvania is a lot of suburbs which have a lot of lawns, which have a lot of lawn service that spray chemicals on the lawns. Are you seeing any of that having a negative impact on the water? Oh, it does. It does have a significant amount of impact on a watershed. You know, all these things that we spray on lawns uh, will wash into a stream. You know, I, I, at one time I was a township supervisor and one of the things that we worked to do was uh, to create riparian buffers along a lot of our streams to kind of prevent some of that type of thing. And uh, the results show. The results are showing. I mean, just in, just in a short lifetime of 55 years, the streams are remarkably better than they were when I was a kid. Well, while, while we have the spotlight on you, I want to ask you about something you wrote about the, the uh, Schuylkill River. It is a complex river that is often misunderstood, underrated, and highly underfished. Now, mm -hmm. people who are used to the Schuylkill River as being the thing that runs through the middle of Philadelphia, can you talk about it a little bit? Why is it underrated, and why is it underfished and misunderstood? Well, the Schuylkill River itself is over 100 miles of water. And at the very headwaters, it's a wild brook trout stream. And a lot of people don't understand that. 
and much of the Schuylkill River, even coming down uh, into northern Berks County, southern Schuylkill County, still harbors populations of trout. And people don't think of the Schuylkill as a trout stream. And an amazing thing takes place once the little Schuylkill River enters, it becomes a different type of a stream. It becomes much larger. Uh, it has uh, good populations of smallmouth. You'll find a big muskie stacked up any place where there's a tributary stream that enters into the Schuylkill. And as you get further down, it becomes a true warm water river until you get to the, the southernmost edge where there's striped bass, you know, brackish uh, water type fish. But the thing about the Schuylkill that's remarkable is you can see it from uh, Route 422 for much of its length, Route 61, but you can't figure out how to get to it. The boat launches along the stream, most of them aren't well signed. A lot of folks see the river and they don't know how to get to it. There's so much water there. Uh, but if you get in, you learn where the boat launches are, you put a boat in the river. Uh, it's a tremendous, tremendous fishery. It offers a lot of stuff and you don't see people fishing the river that much. Uh, Dave, your focus is central Pennsylvania and north central Pennsylvania, yes. which is, uh, I guess, dominated by the Susquehanna. How is the Susquehanna doing environmentally? Uh, it's doing better now than it had been. And uh, one of the issues with regard to the uh, west branch of the Susquehanna, of course, is acid mine drainage. And Trout Unlimited uh, has an uh, ongoing in initiative up in that area to clean up uh, the tributaries. I think at one point they said there were 1,200 miles of impacted streams. That's a lot of water. When uh, the studies were first conducted, I would imagine to set up a benchmark for the data that would be collected afterwards uh, or ongoing. In one of the sections that were surveyed, and this is up around, I think, the, vanilla, the, the village of uh, Renova, which is actually spelled Renovo, but you don't want to pronounce it that way. <laughs> the studies indicated there were only a few fish in that section of stream, uh, river. The last report I had were there were hundreds, and I mean several hundred. I just recently was talking with someone that told me that they know some folks that target smallmouth bass up there, and they're getting large smallmouth bass in good numbers. You, I've never seen a person fishing up there. Now, I have heard right at the uh, town of Lock Haven that the smallmouth bass fishing has actually improved significantly. But from there on up, I personally do not know of anyone who has fished it or who even talks about fishing it. But I do know that there are some folks that are now starting to target that area. So we're seeing, seeing a real improvement. But there's a, a lot of work ongoing, too, to clean, clean up that, uh, that acid mine drainage uh, problem. Yep. I hate to ask somebody to repeat a story, but would you, you are from Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania, yes. and anyone who rides Interstate 80 sees the sign for Jersey Shore, and everybody probably wonders the same thing. What in the world? And you know the answer. Where'd they get the name? I do. At least this is what I was told, and I've never had anybody tell me more than one story. At the town of Jersey Shore, the Susquehanna which is the West Branch, actually is divided by an island. And the village of Jersey Shore actually lies on not the island side, the other side. Originally, when that area was settled, 
the area that is now Jersey Shore was settled by folks who were originally from Jersey. Back then it wasn't New Jersey. And we're talking about, I would imagine, early 1700s and perhaps mid-1700s. And when the folks on the other side of the river were talking about making a trip, they would say, let's go visit the folks on the Jersey Shore. So that's purportedly how the, the town of Jersey Shore got its name. And they signed a Declaration of Independence. That's another thing, yes. Um, <laughs> While we're talking about Jersey Shore. I can't imagine that very many people are aware of the fact that there was a Declaration of Independence signed in Jersey Shore by the, I think they were called the Freemen, in, or excuse me, 1776, on July 4th. And they had no knowledge of the fact that something like that was happening in Philadelphia at the same time. So they were declaring their independence from England? Yes. Yeah. Someone yeah. should write a book. Well, <laughs> that is in books. And one thing, too, is it was signed under the Tyodotan Elm. The elm is no longer there, but the plaque is. Well, when, uh, can I ask you to each go around and just talk about a, a day on the river, like how, if you're going to fly fish, how does the day start? What do you take with you? Where do you go? How do you decide where to fish? Len? Uh, well, I, I decide uh, based on how much, <clears throat> when I have time to go, uh, <laughs> like a lot of other folks who, uh, you know, work full-time jobs and what have you. So that's sort of the first criteria I, I use. Uh, you know, we talk about hatches and what sort of thing. A lot of people uh, that, that Fly fish certainly focus on that. They chase hatches, you know, uh, early in the season hatches, mid season, later season. I, I really don't do that because I don't have the opportunity a lot of times uh, to to worry about that. I go when I when I have the opportunity. But a lot of it will depend on water level. Uh, you know, if, uh, right now we have some back in my area. Anyhow, we have a lot of very high water, but it's it's starting to come down. And when when you want to catch that, it's usually when it starts to starts to go down. You know, not at its peak, although you can fish almost anytime, anything, anywhere. But uh, water, water levels are also a, you know, a major factor, the weather. Uh, it's always better to fish on dark, dreary, rainy days than it is on bright, sunny days, just the opposite of what perhaps non-fishers or, or people that don't fish a whole lot, a lot think. Uh, those dark, dreary days you know, create a, a lot of dark water as well. Uh, as we talked about before, the instincts of the fish are to stay away from predators. Not just human predators, but avian predators, land predators, minks, what have, snake, what, what have you. And they, uh, they always, uh, especially the bigger fish, always seek out the deep, dark recesses, undercut banks. When it's overcast, dark, and dreary, oftentimes you'll find fish that are very wary, as we, those folks <laughs> and I can describe as well, uh, on, on average times of the day, are a lot less wary when the water's a little tinted or whether the sky is overcast and dark and dreary because they feel more secure because it's darker out and that gives them that security that they have under when they're hiding under the banks and logs and what have you and they'll actually come out and take advantage to feed that. If you're on the water at that time, you can catch some of the best fish and uh, biggest fish uh, of, of the year. So that's, that's one of the barometers I use, not the only one, but uh, uh, that's certainly that's a, a driving force for, for my decision making. How do you pick a place to fish? <laughs> well, whenever I would go out and uh, present a program to a group, uh, especially back when I was still working, I've been retired now for several years, I used to tell them my dilemma when I got home from the office was, where do I go? 
do I want to fish one of the best freestone streams in the state or do I want to fish one of the best limestone streams in the state because they were about equidistant for me. And I've got so much water available where I am. I consider the, the, the area of Jersey Shore the gateway to all of this. Uh, the, the, the central part of the state is primarily known for limestone-influenced streams. And the north-central part of the state is primarily known for, or I would say exclusively known for, freestone streams. Now, some people might ask, well, what are the differences? Simply stated, this is over-simply stated, limestone-influenced streams rely heavily on underground aquifers for their flow. Freestone streams rely primarily on runoff. Rain comes down, goes into the mountain, seeps down, and eventually comes out somewhere. And usually where it comes out, you will find a stream. And so that is a very oversimplification uh, with regard to the difference between limestone influenced and freestones. Do they look different? Can you tell uh, by looking at them which they are? I see a difference. Some people that I've, I'm a guide. Uh, I guide fly fishers. And some people really don't recognize the difference because they haven't been made aware of what those differences might be. And on some streams, there, there can be subtle differences. But then you have, I guess you could call them tweeners. There have, there, there have and we have, in north central Pennsylvania, streams that are very high quality water with a uh, high pH factor, for example, that really border on, on limestone influenced. And neutral is seven. Limestone influenced streams are above seven. Uh, typically, a, a good freestoner will go anywhere from about, I'm going to say, 6.3, 6.4 pH factor on up 6.5, approaching that seven. Um, but for the most part, when you're fishing up in the mountains, you're going to be fishing a freestone stream. You go down in the valleys in the central part of the state, you're going to be fishing uh, some of the limestone-influenced streams. And yet some of the tributaries to those streams would probably fall within that tweener category. They're freestone streams, but they're bordering on a, a really uh, good, or, or I should say a higher pH factor than, than some. Henry, you mm -hmm. said earlier that you tend to be nomadic. Mm -hmm. you, you have some of your favorite spots, or do you just go all over the place? I go all over the place, and it's really dependent upon uh, free time. You know, do I have an evening free or a morning free or a day free, or do I have two or three days free? If I have two or three days free, I'm going to get in the car, and I'm going to drive, and I'm going to stay somewhere. If I only have the evening available, I'm going to fish locally, you know, obviously. So it really depends upon that. How do much time can I get away from work? Do you keep your favorite spots quiet, or does everybody kind of know? What oh, some of them stay are? very quiet. Some of them stay very quiet. I mean, some of the some of them are not. Uh, they're they're on the popular side. You know, you're not going to go there and find yourself fishing in solitude. But uh, there's some quiet places out there that are off the grid, and uh, yeah, I, I usually tend to keep them that way. Uh, an interesting thing, uh, you know, my part of the state that I covered was southeast and I helped with part of south central PA. And on the back cover of Keystone is, is a picture of me. I, I had no idea that Jay was taking the picture, but that's a stream in York County, Pennsylvania that's not a classified trout stream. And we were driving around mapping another watershed and found that. And uh, we kept driving over this stream, and this is a pretty cool-looking little ribbon of water. And then we saw a kid walking up out of there, and he had about a, 
a 13-inch wild brown trout on a stringer and said, hmm. So we started to fish and we had a really great time. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of those little secret places out there that are still secret. And uh, yeah, I tend to keep some of those close. You each have your secret spots? Well, <laughs> no, personally, I get accused of talking too much about the waters because uh, I do a lot of programs for various organizations, what have you, either in conservation, fishing, or a, a blend, of, blend of both. Uh, I mean, I've talked to uh, anglers and then run on, go to a program for them, and then later run on to them on that same piece of water that they didn't know anything about, uh, you know, run into them fishing. And, of course, it's funny because they walk up to me and say, hey, you were right about, oh, well, thank God, thank God you said this. This is perfect. It's everything you said it was. Well, by the way, do us a favor. Stop talking about it. Don't tell anybody else. <laughs> now that you told us, that's good enough. <laughs> Don't tell anybody else. So, you know, it, it cuts you both ways. But And there are those waters where, you know, you need to be a little bit quiet about it for the sake of the uh, of, of the fish and the longevity of them. But also, uh, and, and people that write the books like this, you know, the prior authors who have done books like this, because there's seven or eight of these books that have been out there over the years, all of them uh, very good in their own way. And, uh, you know, those authors, as, as well as myself, are also told, you know, you, you shouldn't be talking about this. But, you know, the answer to that is, uh, you know, a river or waterway without friends is a river mm -hmm. way or waterway Amen. that's in jeopardy. Because uh, if no one knows about it and, and something is going to impact that waterway negatively, which, of course, we have had and mm -hmm. still do have and will continue to have on in the future, if no one cares about that or knows about it, that river is not going to be, you know, saved or talked about or have enough people to behind it to do something about it. Uh, and that's that's the, you know, the, 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 the upside or the downside, I guess, in what we publicize and what we don't. Uh, so it cuts you both ways, but uh, I'd rather have people know about it and have it there than have somebody know about it and lose it. Could you all talk about a little bit about um, fly fishing etiquette, like the do's and don'ts? What do you, what's polite and what's impolite and what's verboten? Hmm. Private property, for example. How do you know when it's okay to fish in a particular place? I think it's really important to, uh, you know, if you have a stream that flows through private land uh, to really, it's just like hunting or any other outdoor pursuit, establish a relationship, knock on the door, uh, talk to somebody, have a conversation, explain what you're about, what you're going to do. And uh, some people are going to be naturally guarded about something. So uh, work, to, work to bring that guard down, you know, explain that you, you've practiced catch and release, you know. Uh, if you showed up with a cooler chest full of food, uh, people would probably be a little leery of what you might leave behind when you leave there. You promise that you're going to leave footsteps. And I think that's a, that's a great way to approach that. And I, I think with the one thing, more than anything else, is when you look at, you talk about the etiquette thing, I think it's something that people don't talk enough about. Um, off to all of us, our free time, our private time is priceless. It's invaluable. So the worst thing we can do is get out on the stream and encroach on somebody else's <clears throat> right to that. So I, I think we, we owe each other to give each other a little bit of a wide berth, so if uh, you, if give each other some space. If you want to fish there and you go there and there's somebody fishing, what's the proper distance? I mean, with, oh. within sight? Or That's really dependent on the, on the stream. Mm -hmm. uh, and believe me, anglers can have different perceptions about that. I've experienced that myself in the past. Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, when I first took my job in, with Social Security back in, well, 1980, 
uh, they sent me to the armpit of West Virginia, and most of my fly fishing was actually in southwestern Virginia. You're talking geographic, the yes. shape of the, not, not uh, the quality of West Virginia. No, I guess I would be talking about the quality of West Virginia. I was held hostage in an office down there. We don't want to even go into that. That's another um, program. Yes, that's another program is right. I went fishing with a fellow who later on became the outdoors editor for the Charleston Daily Mail. Super guy. He and I went to uh, a stream, it's actually uh, called a river, but that was up in the headwaters where it was a really nice, uh, I'm going to say small to moderately sized limestone influence stream. And actually it was a south fork of the Holston River. When we got there, it was early season, there was a guy down there, a few hundred yards, there was another fellow up there. Several hundred yards, there was another person up there. He looked at me and says, this is too crowded. We not, we're not going to fish here. I looked at him. I said, what? <laughs> I said, apparently you've never fished in Pennsylvania. Mm. I would have had no problem, and I would have certainly considered that there was plenty of space between anglers for us to be able to enter the water and fish. He really didn't feel that way. Now, if you're on, and I've got to say this before I go further. We have to really keep all of this in perspective. Pennsylvania is the most heavily fished state in the nation for trout. Mm -hmm. Only second to California. That says a lot. Even though our number of license sales has actually gone down, I understand they're going back up. It's, it's uh, leveled off okay. and, and gone up slightly. Yeah. Incre and that's good. Up. That's good because we need those anglers, especially the young ones, to come to be able to sustain this for future generations. But my point is we have a lot of crowded water. And on some streams, if you've got someone 40 yards down below you, there's enough free room for you to get in there and fish. Now, some people will not consider that the appropriate thing to do, and they would consider that a violation of stream etiquette. But so much of it is dependent on the stream and how heavily fished that stream might be. And, re and in reality, it might even be how heavily fished that stream is at that particular time you're on the water. On other streams, like for example small wild trout streams, if I see someone and the water is small, and when I say small, perhaps 20 feet wide on an average or something like that, I'm going to give that person, if I can, at least a quarter mile, I'd like to give them a half a mile. Mm -hmm. Now keep in mind that stream may only be two miles long, but I want to give them plenty of room because they're going to cover a lot more water more quickly. Whereas in a larger stream, you're going to have a lot more holding water to the point that you've got a lot of water to fish perhaps in 40 yards of stream. Dave Rothrock, I couldn't help but notice in your chapter you cover an area that includes Rothrock State Forest. Yeah, I do. Any relation? <laughs> there was a time I would question that, but I have to say based on what I know now, apparently so. There were three Rothrock brothers that came over from Germany. And actually, I'm not originally from where I live now. I'm originally from the southeastern part of the state. I'm originally from just between Coopersburg and Quakertown. And the three brothers settled uh, just outside of Bethlehem, which is Bethlehem for somebody who's local, and uh, Hellertown area, and then they branched out. Keeping in mind that that means one of my relatives was actually the father of Pennsylvania State Forests. Well, you mentioned earlier that you are a guide. Yes. And I made the error of using the word fisherman earlier, 
and you two have used the word fishers, um, when how many uh, people who are fly fisher people are women these days? The number is still fairly low, but from what I've been told, it's the fastest growing facet of fly fishing. And now you have companies who make waders, produce waders and vests and various accessories are really focusing more and more on women. And uh, I think it's great. In fact, it was interesting because I was doing something yesterday. Uh, archery is another something that I really enjoy. And there was a family there and they had a young girl and she was shooting. Whether it be out on the stream or whether it be an, uh, another activity that I might be engaged in, whenever I see a parent, especially with a young gal out there. Now, I've been accused of being sexist when I've done this, but I'll do it anyway. I'll go up and I will commend that parent for not only exposing, but also then allowing that child to be able to get out there and enjoy that as much as they possibly can. Because whether it be man, woman, and one of the things I will tell you, in teaching fly fishing, and casting in particular, I would much rather teach a woman than a man. They listen. Well, if someone is watching this and thinking, well, that sounds pretty interesting. I want to give that a try. How do they learn how to? And, and if someone is in their adulthood and feels awkward trying to learn something new, how do they get started? Well, they have a lot more opportunity than they did when I or the rest of us were, were young, and we struggled with that, as I'd, I'd mentioned earlier today. Uh, obviously, with books, videos, the Internet uh, is, you know, just key in fly fishing, fly tying on, on the computer, and you'll get uh, mind-boggling amounts of information on fly fishing, fly tying, where to go, how to do it, uh, you know, the whole nine yards plus more. And But there are also, uh, you know, a variety of, uh, like, I'm also a commissioner with the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. You know, we do... Uh, fishing uh, seminars. Uh, in fact, we have a, a young lady who's in charge of our, our programs now. He's focused on bringing women, mm -hmm. children, and uh, people in adulthood who have never fished, uh, doing programs around the state that we offer skill, uh, you know, in, uh, skill sets, information, uh, programs where people can, can sign up for free and uh, take advantage of that. There are, you know, fly shops around the, uh, around the state and around the country today that offer, uh, again, instruction. Dave does that uh, himself as a, as a fly fishing instructor, not just a guide. Uh, so today there's uh, ample opportunity to, uh, to learn. Of course, the, the best thing is actual experience. You can look at all the videos, read all the books you want until you actually go out there and do it. And again, find out what works and what doesn't for you. That's the best thing. And that's really the thing that you know, a lot of people have told me, uh, you know, that would like to get into fly fishing. You know, I really want to get into fly fishing. I said, well, the first thing you do have to do is sit down, take that spinning rod or bait casting rod, whatever you had. And again, there's nothing wrong with that type of fishing. Very effective and a lot of fun. And I've done it myself. You set that aside, put it over there. And when you go fishing, take only your fly rod. And, and that's often, oftentimes very difficult for a lot of people to really do because they don't have the com confidence that they're going to be successful. And everybody wants to catch fish. You know, you, we can talk about all the scenery and all the stuff, you know, we, we want, but I don't care what anybody says, it's still more fun when you're catching fish. And uh, people have to have the mindset that uh, they have the confidence to do that. And that's the hardest thing for anybody to do that's out there fishing now is to make that switch. I did it because I forced myself to do it, and that's how I did it. I set my spinning rod away and just 
never looked at it again basically and grabbed the fly rod and went out and caught a whole lot less fish than I had been otherwise. But I was okay with that because I was having more fun catching less fish. Uh, and of course that's eventually changed where I can be a little bit more, slightly more effective now. Not, not nearly as good as my two cohorts here, but nonetheless I can, I can, I can, I can hang in there. Well, I can tell we're not going to have nearly enough time to talk about this, but could you talk a little bit about the technique? We see pictures of people whipping the, the rod back and forth. What are you aiming for there? Well, uh, Dave, Dave, Dave knows how What you aim. did just hurt me. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> you can tell I don't do it. <laughs> it's well, interesting because I teach fly casting. In fact, some would say uh, that I'm uh, a student of fly casting. Uh, in fact, it, for several years I ran rendezvous for casting instructors. And, uh, boy, I look on the stream and sometimes I'll look and say, oh, that's so beautiful. And other times I'll go, oh, I can't watch. <laughs> but you know what? I was like that once, too. <laughs> There's no question. Um, I will say that, first of all, fly, fly casting is not difficult at all. The most important thing a person can do is find someone who's fairly good at it, who also has good communication skills because somebody can be really good at it and have no ability whatsoever to communicate how to do it. And both of those skills have to be possessed by the person they go to. There's no question about that. But, uh, you know, I always tell people when I, when I first demonstrate or, or begin teaching, I said, casting is only a matter of moving and stopping a rod. That's all it is. It's how you move and stop it that really is the difference between a good and a bad cast. Um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll make another uh, pitch for another source that would actually be available to people to learn that would be free, and that's a Trout Unlimited chapter mm -hmm. or a Federation of Fly Fishers Club. Many times, at least once a year, they will run Introduction to Fly Fishing Days, and that's one of the better ways to approach this. You know, once you start getting into hiring an instructor, then yes, there's going to be a charge, and it may be a substantial charge. But in reality, and there was a time I would dispute this until I really learned. And that's when I learned you don't always judge something without knowing something about it. Hiring someone to teach you will save you potentially years mm -hmm. of trial and error. So that's one of the ways. But the technique is just a matter of coming up, stopping the rod just a little bit past 12 o'clock, bringing it forward, stopping it somewhere about maybe 10 or so. We used to go 12 and 2, that's out the window. Uh, but the point is, you, it's a you know, very simple, constant acceleration to a, a solid stop, both directions. You'd be surprised what the fly line will do if you do that. We only have about 10 minutes left, and we really haven't talked about the book yet. <laughs> um, if, if someone buys this book, what do they get? What do they get? I think they get a, a really neat perspective on, number one, the pure amount of water that's available in Pennsylvania. And um, we have over 86,000 miles of trout, or, or streams and rivers, uh, both warm water and cold water. We have a lot of diversity as well. You know, Dave talked a bit about some of the limestone streams. Uh, believe it or not, we have more limestone streams in Lehigh Valley than we do in Cumberland Valley. I learned on a little Lehigh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. But we have a lot of opportunity across Pennsylvania. And, and within that, uh, different types of, of geographies, different types of water, different types of fish species, and uh, we're really fortunate. When you travel outside of Pennsylvania, you don't find as much opportunity, I think, as what we have here in the Keystone State. It really sets us apart. 
And I think when you look at the book, you know, you'll find some really concise information about what some of these different watersheds offer. Um, a thing that I tell people when you look at Keystone as a book, uh, it's a little six by nine book that weighs almost three pounds. It's, it's got some heft. Uh, throw that thing in your glove box. You're gonna go on a road trip up to the Poconos or out to Dave's or Lens area. Take that book along with you. The maps, I think, are really key in that we don't just talk about, for instance, the Lehigh River, but all the little tributaries are also shown on there. They may not be talked about in text, but take this thing and you might find uh, some of those little secret spots that you can call your own. You might find some places where you won't find any other persons on the stream or find other boot tracks. And uh, you'll be amazed at how much fishing opportunities out there. Yeah. Another thing that you also, this set, separates this book from all the others. I said there's many other books that have been done on the same subject. And this is a, a book that's done from a different perspective. Obviously, you have three authors here, but there were eight, nine uh, authors mm -hmm. uh, that did this book. And that's uh, thanks to Jay Nichols, the, uh, the publisher of Headwater Books, who came up with the concept to do the same thing differently. Uh, so what separates this book is about is about you have experts like Dave and, and Henry and, and all the others who live uh, in that area all their lives, fished in that area basically all their lives, know it intimately and were able to communicate that. The other books were done by single authors uh, who traveled around the state and talked to people like us <laughs> and then gathered that information and then wrote about it. And, then, and those books are excellent. They're very effective. Uh, uh, they're very good information. They've been very valuable for many years. But this book, by compiling regional authors and then condensing it into one volume is what uh, I think it makes it more uh, accurate, uh, more localized, uh, and obviously more up to date because it's, uh, it's a brand new book. Lots so, of pictures too. So it's, uh, it, it was the same thing done very differently in a very positive way and, and, and that's thanks to Jay Nichols who came up with this new direction mm -hmm. that uh, no one else had thought of after all these years and uh, I think that's what really separates this book and has uh, really made it a dynamic book and made it as popular uh, as, it, as it is and will be. I want to ask about one thing that is not a section that any of you wrote, so I don't want to put you on the spot, but, uh, but about Presque Isle and Lake Erie, mm -hmm. because all your other sections are on streams and rivers, and this is a big lake. Is there something different about fly fishing on Lake Erie? I fished with Carl. This and is Carl, uh, who, Carl, wrote, Carl Wexman, yeah. who wrote the chapter. Super guy, excellent fisher. But what was interesting was when I went up to Presque Isle, I went up with a few other guys, including one other guide. And one of the fellows convinced us to hire Carl for a day. And we agreed. Here's Carl with two of his peers. And the third fellow, whom he had guided a number of times in the past. But I will tell you that having Carl's knowledge available for a water about which we had no prior knowledge was invaluable. I mean, yeah, it cost us a few dollars, but we learned a lot. And Presque Isle really has a lot to offer. It's incredible. We waited a lot of Presque Isle. Now, what that means is getting out there in the water, in our waders, and walking for Lord knows how far, perhaps to one of the small islands, whatever. You can, you can really maneuver in some of those places. And you can sometimes see those, those fish and cast to them that way. One evening... We, uh, this was uh, another day that, that uh, Carl was actually fishing. We found out he was going to fish. He says, ah, come on over in the evening. 
he was fishing for something totally different than smallmouth bass, which we had targeted primarily the day that we were there. And uh, in fact, I think he was targeting, targeting pike. And I think I was the only one who hooked in one. But I lost it. I didn't land it. Uh, but there's so much diversity up there, so much variety available, that it is, it is definitely a fishery worth uh, spending some, or excuse me, I don't like the word to, to use the word spend. It's, it's, I think, valuable to invest some time to learn that fishing up there. Well, you talked a lot about smallmouth bass, and then you just said pike. What else, what other fish are out there? And are, are there new fish that come along, or fish that used to be here that aren't here anymore? Well, there's bowfin up in Pre uh, Presque Isle. Bowfin is something that I don't know where else you, in, in the state you, are maybe, you, you may be able to catch. Somerset Lake in uh, Somerset oh, really? County uh, okay. has, actually has okay. both. And, yeah. and, and, and even, even carp uh, that a lot of people feel is uh, a trash fish is actually, even though it's not classified in Pennsylvania as a game fish, <clears throat> is one of the uh, most dynamic fish uh, to catch on a fly or any other uh, uh, lure bait or what have you. Uh, I mean, the only uh, time I've seen my backing on my fly line, which is the extension behind the fly line uh, to make your, you know, line a little bit longer. The only time I've seen that out uh, off my reel east of the Mississippi River is on carp. Uh, and they're, they're gaining a lot of popularity mm -hmm. and uh, not just in Pennsylvania but around the, uh, around the globe. Oh, yeah. uh, even though they are an invasive <coughs> species in Pennsylvania and a lot of people disdain them for that, uh, they're a great uh, targeted game fish, especially for fly fishers. And it's one of the new frontiers of fly fishing that I've gotten into and, and uh, enjoy it very much. They're here, we can't get rid of them, we might as well utilize them. So there really isn't a, a species of game fish uh, that's out there. I mean, they fish for tarpon in the ocean, sailfish, uh, everything from that to bluegills are uh, available to uh, uh, you know, have success with, uh, with, with, with fly fishing, depending just having the right kind of equipment and scale it to uh, the species you're after. And right here in Pennsylvania, I personally find a need periodically to go after panfish, mm -hmm. sunfish, crappies, rock bass, and if you want some good eating, you can catch and kill there, and I do. And I will tell you, they're incredible fun to catch. And really, for someone who's just starting out fly fishing, they're easy to catch. Mm -hmm. So now you've got something that's fairly easy to catch. You don't have to be a great caster to present a fly to them. You can kill them, take them home, fry them up, broil them, do whatever you want, and have some of the best eating going. Well, uh, one where there's we have a minute left, and Steelhead Alley is a section of the book. Do you know anything about Steelhead Alley? I don't want to put you on the spot there. I, I haven't done a lot of it, and that's that's one thing for me that I really should improve my game on. I've done some, and it's absolutely a blast. You know, if you went back years ago, we didn't have steelhead and salmon fishing opportunities in Pennsylvania, and uh, some of the conservation work that's been done on Lake Erie and the tributaries that come out of or feed into Lake Erie. Uh, have some fabulous runs of steelhead and uh, salmon species in the fall, all through the winter months into the early spring. It's tremendous, tremendously exciting. I wish we had all day to talk about this, but we're <laughs> out of time. We've been speaking with Henry Ramsey, from, who focuses on southeast Pennsylvania, Len Likvar focuses on southwest Pennsylvania, and Dave Rothrock, he focuses on north, central, and central Pennsylvania, talking about fly fishing and writing in this book, Keystone Fly Fishing, The Ultimate Guide to Pennsylvania's Best Water. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.
You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.